You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, my name is Benny Tran. I am Executive Vice President of the Los Angeles Football Club, most recent and current MLS champions. I am originally from Atlanta, actually born in New Orleans, raised in Atlanta, Georgia, so Southern. Uh, and had a wonderful journey in my life and my career where it took me all around the world, including the Middle East, East Africa, uh, and spending a lot of my time in Vietnam, working, studying in Vietnam, working in Vietnam, uh, and now here I am in Los Angeles working in sports. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you for coming on, Benny. What um, does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays, man? It's a, it's a very interesting question. I hear an answer on your podcast every single time. Obviously, this is the intro. Um, it is an evolving thing for me. It is one thing and it is everything at the same time to be Vietnamese. Um, it is uh, who I am by blood. It is who I am culturally because of my parents. Um, I am Vietnamese American for a lot of purposes, but also am not Vietnamese for other purposes, for example, when I'm in Vietnam. Uh, but I've been very fortunate to experience, I would never trade anything from for being Vietnamese, but all my experience in my life, whether it was good or bad. And I think it's unique in a sense that in the, today's world of identity politics and culture, but also at the same time, uh, being able to live in Vietnam for almost 10 years experience living in Vietnam and understanding the country of Vietnam, the culture of Vietnam, and the people of Vietnam, which, you know, I don't necessarily share extreme commonality with, right? Um, but I think that's 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 what it is. It's a lens of which I see things through. It is uh, how I am identified by people and people around me, good and bad. Um, and I can't leave the food out. I love Vietnamese food. And you know this. Um, and I am uh, extreme with my Vietnamese food, and and the and that's mostly what I cook. And I love Vietnamese food more than anything in the world. So, except for chicken wings, perhaps. <laughs> um, you are one of the few guys. Uh, there's a few guys in my circle that I aspire, and I and I don't say this uh, lightly, but I aspire to be the kind of Vietnamese that you are. You know, somebody who is extremely confident with their roots but also recognize like what you just said about when you're in Vietnam, you're not really Vietnamese or doesn't feel Vietnamese. 
And that's like a big admission, but right. The kind of the acute awareness of not really being of Vietnam when you're in Vietnam is, is also a, a, a beautiful thing to kind of understand. I appreciate that. I, I consider myself lucky for having that experience because not many people do so. Um, I think a part of that also is kind of my journeys around the world. You know, I, I funny enough, I was convinced to study Arabic in high school because my brother said, you need to do this to separate you from apart from everyone else in college, college applications. Um, it was evidence in high school in our programs where we had Chinese and Arabic where you know, students were going and being successful um, in getting into college. And then I was, you know, had a tough time growing up in the middle of non-Asian Atlanta and a, in, a, in a really poor neighborhood to to find identity in, I guess, in the midst of a lot of, you know, racism or judgment, stereotyping. Um, and I didn't want to be Vietnamese or Asian. So I took this, I chose Arabic. And through that journey, it was kind of my first time abroad, experiencing a new culture. I absolutely fell in love with it. But um, what was interesting, I remember the first time I flew to Vietnam on a plane to do my Fulbright there in, in, in 1999, oh, no, 2002. I was on that plane and I was landing. I was like, oh, my God, I'm here in my home country. It's going to feel like my mother country. Then I get off the plane, the morass of people outside waiting and see my name, my cousins. And they're like, hi. And I was just open my mouth and said hello and said something Vietnamese. They're like, oh, you are not Vietnamese. And that hit me right in the face, right? And that kind of informed me, you know, of, of that was really first impression of what I was to them. And then it was a journey. And then studying abroad in other countries and seeing how people treat, treated me as a foreigner. And then then in Vietnam, you realize that the shared experience of you as a Vietnamese is not the same as theirs. And you got to yeah. be caught of that. Um, and, and like it's in, and we've had many discussions about Vietnam, Vietnamese American, the the politics and the context. But the reality of, you know, we 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 may have we're lucky enough to grow up in America. Well, there are a lot of people who struggled and grew up during the 70s, 80s, 90s or even now who are enjoying the economic growth of Vietnam and the young people of Vietnam that are that are having a great life um, living in that, um, you know, current economy and society at the moment. You and I have spent uh, quite a bit of time together, and I've looked forward to this uh, interview for a very long time, and thank God we waited. Thank <laughs> God. I don't, I don't know if you planned that or you calculated <laughs> that, but geez, thank God we waited because, first of all, congratulations on the LAFC team's championship win uh, in the L MLS. It's like, a, I, I just cannot believe the serendipity of us waiting for to do this interview because we could have done it a long time ago just based on how long we've known each other and how much time we spent. Did you plan to, I mean, why did you wait so long? I mean, it's so wise that we did wait for this. Uh, no, I look, I, things happen for a reason, I think. There, there was no purpose and reason other than the fact that I want to keep pushing. I was busy or not busy, but didn't commit to this interview, to be honest, at some time. Um, and things recently got very busy um, and landing on a spot of becoming MLS champions. It has been a, a, a good piece of work in my career uh, for a good almost almost eight years um, to today. Um, it was, a you know, the idea was born out of Henry Nguyen, founding owner, um, and he brought me into the project. And um, we had and I we didn't have an idea, but we had an idea of how we wanted to build 
a team in Los Angeles where there were other 11 other professional sports teams, competitive market, and how do we grow this? Um, amazing team, amazing people in the organization from the business side to uh, the performance side, amazing owners. And the performance side obviously is um, the top layer here as uh, players and uh, you know who won us the championship as well. But also on the other side of the organization in terms of brand building, building the community here in Los Angeles, I think it all came together. We were so close before COVID hit and here we are as MLS champions. It was a very emotional day <clears throat> when we all won. A lot of people were crying afterwards, fans, um, fans, employees, owners, um, you know, together. Uh, and I think it was a, a moment of joy and an emotional moment of joy and really a capstone to, to the hard work that everyone put in, including, you know, people who are the supporter section um, and the passion, the love. Uh, the game was so tight. And I'd love to quote my partner in crime and, and colleague and buddy, Richard Roscoe, who was our head of uh, branding. He said, when we were tied, when we we're losing three to two down near, near when the game was almost ending, he said, there's too much love in the stadium for us to lose. And lo and behold, we tied it and won the penalty kicks. You know, I uh, have always worn um, an L.A. Dodgers hat, baseball, the baseball hat. And because I love the logo, but Jesus, the logo that I wear now for the LAFC hat, I wear it everywhere. I wore it to New York. I just, I'm so proud of it. And the thing about it is this, it's like, I'm not a really big sports person and we'll get into that. And the fact that I'm not a bandwagon guy <laughs> because of you, I'm not, I'm not a bandwagon guy. I'm, I feel like I've, I was there from not day one, but early enough. And kind of like, oh, no, no, I was wearing, you know, the the gear and, and being part of this experience because of, you know, really through you, because I don't really, you know, I'm not a really big sports guy. So it has added another dimension to my life uh, to wear this gear. And it's such a, a, a privilege and an, an honor to be part of that s sort of story of my, of my home city. But how did it really come about? Because you're not from here, Henry's not from here. Did it the the original idea come from Henry? Like he just thought, like I'm gonna do this, or like where did this germ of an idea for a, a soccer team in LA? We already have the Galaxy here, right? What where did it come from, and what's the uh, the the origin story? Oh, so so it actually came from the fact that the league did buy back a second team in Los Angeles back. It was Which team? It's called uh, Shiva's LA or LA Shiva, oh, yeah. the formal name. Um, so in fact, it was technical, right? And, and then um, that was taken back to the league, and they were actually posted it for sale and as a bid. So Henry was one of the bid groups that submitted and and, and won. Um, and <clears throat> and then when he won the won the franchise, you know, he invited me to to explore and possibly work and really work with the team and building out the franchise. Um, so that's really where it came from. And then also before that, you know, I worked with Henry to build the Saigon Heat basketball team. And he's did, he has done wonders in terms of building sport. Uh, he's built the, the, the basketball league and also basically the NCAA of sports um, in Vietnam, which is very interesting and, and something needed, I think, in terms of when it comes to the identity of college. And we talk about identity. And I think this is something that's really interesting is really sports is, represent, is, is one avenue of representing a, a person, a city, a region, a country, 
And this is all timely too, because I'm leaving for Qatar tomorrow, going to the World Cup. And that's the ultimate world competition uh, between countries and, and, and behind it is country pride uh, and sport. Um, and so that's how it came to being. I mean, and, you know, once you receive the franchise, you got to figure out how to build out the club. Um, and there were many people involved in that, including people from Los Angeles um, that was part of building out the team. Sports, people from non-sports, it was a diversity of thought, I think, that existed that really propelled um, what we ha- were thinking about doing, how we did it, planned it, and executed it. Uh, but there were fundamental elements, right? We were here in a competitive market. Um, LA, Los Angeles is a very complex place. I've never been here before, even stepped foot into Southern California before I even came here for an interview and took the job. Wow. And in terms of me, you know, look, I love um, understanding, you know, different countries, different cities. Um, and this is one of the cities I never knew and understood and actually had to explore and understand much like I did in Cairo when I arrived, much like, you know, Dar es Salaam or, you know, Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon. Uh, because LA is wide. I thought Santa Monica and Hollywood were downtown. And that was that was literally what I thought when I landed. Um, and, and it's a really complex and the, place. And the irony is some guy who thought Hollywood and Santa Monica was downtown is the guy that takes me to new restaurants in my own city now. It's crazy. You take me to at least a good three or four new places. And I know that that's just like scratching the surface for, for, for you. You, you, you know, all the good restaurants, hole in the walls and the big, the big restaurants, you, you know, all of them here. And uh, yeah, to, but I mean, I think that's the, the beauty of somebody who doesn't live here is the exploration of a city like LA. It's very complex. I've long given up on, on, on trying to keep track of everything. Yeah. I mean, complex and a sense of discovery. Right. And there's a lot of intentionality in what you do on a daily basis in L.A., given the geographic nature of it and also the cultural nature of it. But if you're intentional about exploration, that's also very different. Um, But it's a it's a wonderful city. And we've had the goal of bringing a championship here, but also building a brand, building something that people can believe in and people something that can represent people. And I think that we've done a decent job at it. A pretty not a, not a bad job at it. And there's more work to be done. Um, raising kind of the awareness of the sport and as a team, we had a competitor down the street for a long time who'd been in the market for a while. But we saw the opportunity and we saw what we can do, we could do. Um, and there was a lot of that we got wrong along the way. And there's a lot that we learned. And I think that's really what was the most important was we learned and we you know, really put uh, all that forward. And, that, you know, you experience not just the brand and the team, but also the stadium experience and kind of how we interact with the city in a sense and through, you know, our, our channels of social media and, and whatnot. You know, when you walk through the stadium and you're walking around looking for your seat or getting a beer, you know, my experience is uh, it goes back to Henry and you. I think about that. I Like literally when I'm walking through the stadium with our friends, I'm like, how the fuck is this possible where these Vietnamese guys are the ones that drove this stadium into existence? And knowing sort of like now the championship, you know, getting that championship and knowing that there's a Vietnamese man up at the highest level of this game, of this, you know, this is a a countrywide acknowledgement of excellence. And there's you and Henry behind it. You know, it, it, it's such a, a a point of pride because it's all Latino. 
it's all black it's all white it's all everything and there's very few there are asian people in, in the stands but you walk through and you're like this is the mastermind of these vietnamese guys i'm so fucking proud of that when i walk through that stadium and that's why i i could wear the the the, the gear the hat and with so much pride because i know you know it's my city and it's also these vietnamese men that are behind the driving force of of getting to this point i appreciate that you know i'm glad we can represent but honestly you know that's not how with the lens we see it through and then when somebody you know suggests that or says that like, oh that's actually in fact true i mean look there's there's not a lot of asians who are executives or owners within professional sports um but even how we built the city was based on the fact that it was a diversity and we want to embrace yeah. the diversity you know there's things that we had goals for we want to represent the crowd to represent the city of la and if there's not enough asians that we're hoping to get more asians here yeah um, even at the, at the time we were actually trying to work these things out and build the thesis behind and how we would implement addressing the city um i thought hey you know Let's market segment. Let's do this. Let's do, just send this message to the Vietnamese. And you know, uh, Rich was like, "Hey, be be patient. Um, we are, are just have principles of which we want to, uh, you know, uh, uh, share with the city. We had principles such as be a force for good, um, to bring joy, um, and uh, and and really for everyone in the city, and see how they come. And as we build it, it doesn't it doesn't happen overnight." And even we're still building now, but I think the fan base, I would, if you ask our fans today at the city, why, why do you feel great by going to Bank California? And look, we have all the technology stack, the fan stack, all these good things. But I think one of the things I'll say up front is we feel well, everyone's welcome here. And I think that's something that's we're proud of um, and, and we're very happy about. And we continue to, to work on that. And you can feel it. You can feel it. I have, um, as you know, uh, El Salvadorian cousins, um, first cousins uh, that were fans before I even knew of LAFC. Before it was even on my radar, they were going to the games um, in years past. And the the outpouring of fandom from them and their you know, 30, 40 friends that I know, it's uh, uh, what you say. It's like... It, I realize by design and, and 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 the blueprint, obviously of knowing you now, uh, there is a, a specific way. Because when you go to Dodger Stadium, I've been to a Dodger game, and it, you don't you don't feel that because it's just sort of like it's bigger and it just has this sort of like it's more of an American white American kind of pastime. But when you go to LAFC's game, you feel the inclusion. That's like the beauty of it. You feel welcomed, and and even if you're a white person or uh, you know somebody in the majority, you still feel like this is a place for you. Yeah, and I, look, and I have to give credit to the fans and the supporters and all the people in the stadium as well, including the people who are the part-time employees, who are guest services and security. There's a sense of community that has been built. Like for example, when you come to a game, we don't have tailgates in the parking lots. We do what we call a family picnic in the grassy area in front mm. of the stadium. That's where the supporters set up before they come to the game. And sometimes six hours, eight hours before, <clears throat> they bring their own brewed beer, cooked food, and they welcome everybody. If you walk rock up to one of these tents, yeah, hi, they're like, hey, would you like to some ceviche? I mean, you can see our security guards have become friends with them. Wow. And they share food and break bread together uh, before they go and work into the game at, at there. And same thing also kind of, you know, in the same as well, right? You say, 
in the Figaro Club, which is one of the spaces where I have tickets in, people celebrate birthdays together and know each other. And yes, we created an environment that we we're hoping that would happen. But that's really among people. And, I, and the commonality is LAFC, the passion for not just the game, the game of soccer, the players, but really for what it means to be there or be a part of LAFC and be, you know, supporting the team. And Latinos are big family. You know, I they're they're just as much uh, into family as as Vietnamese people. I mean, it's a clear you could feel it. There's families there, and um, when you go to that grassy area, you could see how tight these that the community is. It, do they have to get permits, and do they have to get anything before they set up these canopies? Um, I I'm pretty sure there's something set up, but that's a that's a known thing that uh, we haven't set up for have the opportunity for everyone to celebrate with each other yeah you were there from ground zero i mean literally before ground zero can you tell me about uh, like a broad overview on the process of how the stadium and how the team was built i yeah in terms of just how we're looking at building it we started early so december 1st it's October 30th is when the team was announced. I joined the team on December 1st. And when I landed, um, the first order of business, how do you figure out to build a stadium? And then, you know, we had to secure that, secure the land, find a piece of land to do that, secure the land, and then figure out how to build a stadium. Um, and that was my first project. Uh, what that what, I what was there before the stadium? It was a sports arena. So that's where uh, I believe the Kings played. I believe the... Clippers played there. Maybe the Lakers played there for a little bit before they moved to the Forum. I may be wrong. That's also where Bruce Springsteen played every year. That was his at the arena. So this is on the site of the original LA Arena. This is the Olympics was held there here too, right? Like there's parts of the Olympics that 1984. Yeah, I'm sure, there was something. It was built in the early 60s, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so this is an old sports arena that was that little round thing. Yeah. Um, it was there. It was with a fence around it. Nothing was being built there. And uh, that was where we wanted to be. Also in the heart of Los Angeles in Expo Park, right in downtown, essentially. And you know, it's interesting kind of with the economic growth of Los Angeles, recentering of Los Angeles in downtown. Um, I, and, and geographically, you think about that, it's a very important place to be, except that, you know, the growth of LA didn't go that way until the last decade and a half or so, where uh, now crypto.com but staples center was built and that still is the prime example or or the 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 the, the benchmark for you know redevelopment at some level next to sports arena is, is staples center how it was rebuilt and it reopened downtown as you know downtown was not a great place to be for a long time and when staples center was built in 2002 i believe they started changing things and you know aside from covid uh, downtown is really a new center with development, people living there. Um, and this is interesting in the context of Los Angeles, right? People don't know, like I didn't know, but you've always got the West Side, people talking about the West Side, Santa Monica and the beaches, but more than half the population lives East. Yeah. And South. Uh, it's just that it's not necessarily the the highest economic, social economic neighborhoods of, of the city, but they're very important parts of, of how the city operates and, and how people live, um, including San Gabriel Valley, where a lot of Asians do live. East LA, where Latinos live, and it's obviously mixed in South LA. Um, it's it, so we're right in the center of everything. So once you guys figured that LA Arena was the uh, the site where you're going to build the stadium, how long does it take to build the stadium? 
there were multiple things working in parallel because we had to move so quickly. And we had the goal of building this by 2018, it opened by 2018. So when you walk it back um, in from 2015, you've got roughly, uh, you know, three years of some change to figure out how to design, to get, get the land, design it, go to entitlements and then build the thing. So luckily we were able to move quickly. Um, we had to get the lease under USC because that was under the mm-hmm. purview. We had to sign an agreement uh, with the state because it was lived within Expo Park. Uh, it was governed by those rules. And then in parallel, we hired our architects, construction managers, construction company, start designing the thing, and then securing the land, securing entitlements, designing all at the same time. And we broke ground in, in, in 2000, uh, July or August 2016. We demolished the building and built it in 18 months. And it opened in, in uh, April of 2018. It, it sounded like a smooth ride, was it? Oh, uh, it was a fast ride. It's never smooth. And uh, there were a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of hard work. Uh, but we got there. And it was an incredible moment when we opened the stadium. It was one of those nights where, you know, you had those moments, those, uh, what do you call those moments? I guess existential moments. It's like when I traveled to the pyramids and I always want to be an archaeologist. And I looked at the pyramids like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm here. It was one of those moments wow. that day when we opened the stadium. So incredible Incredible, we got it open. Um, the branding, we had 17,000 fans sign up before the coach was even hired. That's kind of like, you know, one of the ele- some of the elements of how we approach the brand. Uh, and then we opened the building and we started playing in 2018 through 2019. We lost in the Western Conference Championships 2019 and then COVID hit. And now here we are today in our fifth season with the Cup. Amazing story. Now, when you look back this resume that you have is not it's not planned i can i'm pretty sure you didn't say to yourself all right i'm gonna study arabic in college and i'm gonna get out and i'm gonna put this i'm gonna stack my cv by by building the stadium and then managing this team i mean what did you think of your life going leaving college that you were going to be doing yeah that's I'm very fortunate to have such an eclectic resume, as one would say. Um, you know, one, and look, I had base principles, right? We grew up poor. We didn't have much. And how do we make sure that we don't have to live the life that we did before? Or how do we actually build a life for our children uh, for which we don't have the experience, right? And I think that's really the baseline. And I think um, all of us kids of immigrants have maybe a similar um, goal and objective um, as we pursue those who are at least ambitious, I think, to pursue or at least in the baseline of making sure that we're successful in general. And we don't have to grow up at food, on food stamps and line up for government cheese, as Charles Barkley says on the NBA. I mean, that government cheese was a real thing, you know, and and um, how do we achieve, how do we be successful? And that could vary on many different levels. And for me, it was interesting because studying Arabic, and even though we were poor, my first experience in Egypt was the unbelievable level of poverty that existed. And that kind of word informed where I first wanted to mm. uh, pursue my career. It was like, you know, I want to be a part of the solution. I It, it could have been a diplomat, but it shifted to doing international development work. Um, and I lived in Egypt twice, and that's what inspired me to pursue that. And I did pursue that. So fortunately, um, I did a Fulbright in Vietnam, um, after school, and it kind of gave me a different perspective, you know, uh, from 
the Middle East. And then I pursued a graduate degree with, you know, working in a consulting firm in between international development, public policy. And that, you know, you, you, you kind of need that to really launch your career in that field. Uh, and then I was fortunately sent to Vietnam to open the Clinton Foundation office there and to do the good work that that we did around the world, but it's particularly in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. So that was, you know, where I pursued, what I pursued then. Um, and then, you know, I decided that it was time to move on my career and kind of go back to the private sector. And I was a fortune to, to find myself at the soccer team. I never thought I would ever work in sports, even though I was a soccer fan and a sports fanatic. Um, but that's also the principles of, you know, business skills and life skills, professional skills, you know, but it's just kind of a different flavor of it. Right. And, and you know, it's interesting when you're building a club like this, it's all about social science and social behavior. Um, so I was about, uh, able to apply some of my learnings in my, my previous life to to what is here. So I think being a non-Angelino also helped me in terms of how I approach the work. You you went to Princeton, right? For graduate school, yes. For graduate school. And, you know, we talk about this all the time, East Coast, West Coast. The experience of of going to a school like Princeton to study what you studied, can you tell me a little bit about that and how it sort of informs your worldview? I, in what sense, I guess? Yeah, I think it, the, yeah, I think it's more like the question is where do you kind of place the emphasis on, on education if you went to school on the West Coast versus on the East Coast? And how does it really kind of like inform the way you look at the world because it does I, I've, I've you know I talk about this quite a bit on, on the podcast Vietnamese uh, East Coast uh, look at the world a little differently than the Vietnamese on the West Coast yeah I mean I I don't know the particular answer to the question as it relates to the West Coast in pursuit of something like this right so I'll just lay the groundwork of this when you're in the field of international development and international relations there's a pathway and so you know you study Arabic and you study a foreign language um, you quickly realize if you want to do that. Now, if you wanted to join the the diplomatic corps, there's a pathway. You, you apply for the test, you go, or if you go to grad school, then you go. There's certain levels that you enter in. If you wanted to work in international development, um, you have to pursue. It's it's a it's a really really weird sector where if you don't have experience, you won't get hired. But if you don't get experience, you don't get paid to do that. Get that experience, and then you have to go to grad school, right? So if you come from a lower socioeconomic status. Yeah. You know, it is difficult. It's like it's like uh, you know, limited jobs where someone's able to pay for SATs or or get someone be sent to Africa to work, and then you get to go to work at the United Nations or something like that. So there's a specific pathway to get there, and you can make decisions on what the best schools are. Um, at some level, you have to do a calculus of what the value is. Right? Is it worth going to grad school for this or not? And if you do go for grad school, in my opinion, you have to go to the top five schools. If you do, if you don't, it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily mean that you won't be successful. I think the chances of being successful, that's how the system works, is you go to the top five schools. So my goal was to focus on that, get there, and get to grad school because I knew that was the next step to get at into um, you know these these institutions. Things have changed where do people do cross from business and MBA and whatnot, uh, but that's really the pathway. Now, you know you have to be open to that. Yeah. You have to know where the schools are. They're all on the East Coast, right? Um, there is a great public, there are great public policy schools here on the West Coast, but they're primarily domestic. And there's like Berkeley, Gold, the top, top, top. 
Um, but yeah, that's kind of how the pathway was and the pursuit of it. And you got to grind to get there and you got to be open to it and you got to know what you're focused on. And that's what you got to achieve. So I don't know if sure that answers your question, yeah, it, West it, it, East Coast, but. It does. And, and and the reason I ask this is because there's a lot of, um you know, um kids that are Vietnamese American growing up in Southern California that are living in a bubble. Uh, and I know this now because I've now have given, you know, been invited to some of the high schools in Orange County and uh, predominantly Vietnamese, 75% Vietnamese. Shout out to La Quinta High, uh, Chris and uh, Kimo over there. Um, and I got this experience to listen to the teachers and the students. Uh, they don't sort of understand um, that there is more opportunity in the world to pursue other paths. And I think Kimo and Chris, the teachers, really push for that sort of like to inspire the children that there are these people like Benny Tran out there that are doing things that are, I can't even fathom, you know, before I met you, I didn't, I couldn't fathom that there were these positions in the world that's open to, to us. It's just simply because we're not exposed to it. That's it. And now that we get to see somebody like a Benny Tran on a podcast and listen to the, the sort of like the, it's like an incongruent pathway that you have to kind of be open to allowing serendipity to take place, but also knowing that there's a grind to the process that you have to really be focused at achieving one thing at a time and eventually it'll, it'll open up. And so that's why I'm very curious about that path that, that somebody like you would take. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, you, and, and look, I, and what are the unique West coast and East coast and, and otherwise, um, and we can talk about how it's uniquely West Coast as well. Uh, I think it cuts the same way for, you know, neighborhoods that are poor. If you mm -hmm. have a bad counselor, if you don't have a, a high level of graduation and, and sending kids to top schools, you don't really get educated or exposed to that kind of information. Um, same thing with parents of those students or where you live. Now, I think the proximity is one thing where it's important, where you kind of see and then also you see kids on the East Coast like, hey, that's pursuit for, you know, going for Ivy top schools or going to great state schools there. So that that level of exposure um, and willingness to, to go to that. Right. Yeah. I think that's the fluidity of hap what happens more on the East Coast. Like if I'm Atlanta, it's like, OK, I go to school in New York, I go to school in Florida. I think that's a major difference here is that the weather's beautiful here. I have my family here. The big East Coast is the big unknown, whether it would be weather, culture, they're not nice people, whatever it may be. Yeah. We'll tend to stay here. And I think it's really critical and, and you know, for for young people to explore beyond where their home base is. And I think it's a high level of commitment on both the parents mm. and also the students to the parents to let them go. Talk to a lot of folks here. They're, un, you know, no, my children need to stay close. I want them around. That's not so different from from the East Coast in, in a certain level, like Vietnamese families, but here it's I think it's 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 like really acute, right? Like no, no, wait, no East Coast can't keep an eye on them. I don't know what's going to happen to them. It all comes from a place of love, but also I think a recognition of exposing them to new things, new young adults to new things is critically important. And look for all those parents out there, they're going to love you more when they come back from the East Coast. I think yeah. that's that's a common uh, result of. And I think it's better for everyone. And so my life is has been about being exposed to new environments and new cultures and in forms of who I am. And it also helps me in terms of, you know, how I approach my life. But I think it's a wonderful thing to do 
whether it be in America or beyond. Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, your exposure to the Middle East, your exposure to so many years in, in um, Asia and now on the West Coast, you know, it just it gives, you know, as a young person, you know, in high school, I hope that this gives them this sort of, uh, you know, because now I know that there's a lot of high school kids that are listening or being assigned to listen to this podcast. And, you know, so they can kind of expand the reality of their future. And it just doesn't have to be some traditional route. And traditional routes are great. It, you know, creates the stability of our, our the foundation of our um, financial sort of, uh, you know, footing in the, in the new country. But at the same time, this representation that you are doing is so vital to living. It really translates to living a better life for Vietnamese people in America. Bottom line. I'll make that argument till the day I die. Sounds great to me, but it's great. And and, and uh, shout out to La Quinta High and everybody else who's listening. But no, I think that's what it is. You know, keep that open mind. We look, we, we talk about opportunities. There's still structural challenges to it, but keep your mind focused. We are lucky enough to be in a place where we have optionality as such and learn about more cultures. You have a choice to study Spanish. You have a choice to study abroad. Yeah. Um, some may have financial restrictions, but go find it. I mean, I was lucky enough to have scholarships throughout my life to allow me to do these things. Um, it was unique for an Asian guy to speak Arabic and pursue that, but that's that's how I got there and figuring out the, the right pieces to to allow for that pathway of opportunity and then just be ready to take that opportunity, you know, down the line. Yeah, I want to take this back to representation. Uh, you know, 4% is the Asian sort of, I think 4 or 6% now, I think 6% is Asian, um, the, the amount of Asians in America. In that 6%, I don't know, maybe we are 20% of that 6%. I, I don't even know if we're 1% of the United States. But why is it so important? And I, obviously, I have my own answer to that. But I want to know, why is it so damn important for less than 1% of a country like the United States to have Vietnamese people be in the positions that you uh i why is it important for me to advocate for guys like like us to kind of be represented when the ratio in the united states is so off right why why do we get to demand this why should we demand it you know it's interesting that's an interesting question we don't think we talked about this, this particular context you know i don't see it with kind of in that framework right i think it's just you know, the incredible work that you're doing that I've come to realize, right? My exposure to the Vietnamese community here was almost nothing. And it wasn't much before I practically met you. I knew it existed. I knew that different circles existed, even academia. Um, and I think it's, you know, important to have any um, group to be represented. And I don't think it's a ratio thing. I think it's the voices of us being represented in general and bring it to light. Look, I, I don't even know 90% of the people you're interviewed, and I can't believe that who they are and how they are and, and, and what they're doing. And there's like a long list of them to come, as we always debated and talked about. Uh, but it's incredible, right? People should recognize we are, we, who we are as an American and being successful, as an Asian American being successful, and also being Vietnamese to be successful. And as you said, that there is something very important in terms of having people successful to represent and for people to aspire to. Um, and I think as you talk about high school kids, um, and whether it be also a non-Asian, non-Vietnamese kid who can look at someone who can, you know, rise in sports or rise in media and so forth. But, you know, it, it goes back to that. It goes back to also, you know, making sure that there's a presence, say, for example, Asian-Americans in Hollywood, 
to be expressed a certain way. Um, and I think generally that's how I see the world and, and approach and why that is important and relevant, but not necessarily. There's, I don't think the ratio has anything to do with it necessarily. And, and why does it have to justify what we should or should not be represented as a small percentage of America? I think there are just a lot of voices here that, that need to be represented. Um, and we've been working through this as a country for many, many years, ups and downs even recently, and we continue to do so. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow. I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. That's a great answer Could be because I have a very myopic view and it's because of people like you that opens me up. Because, you know, I think of it as a simple mathematic equation, you know, we're a tiny population and, but you're right. It, it, it doesn't need to be a mathematical or ratio uh, it's something as an identifier, as a number. It's just we have stories and we don't want to be depicted as anything less than what we really are. Yeah, I think that's right. exactly right. And it's incredible that we have, you know, what we have now and people who are rising to to become at the forefront of literature and academia and so forth right and it's going to be a long journey in the future and there's other uh ethnic groups that have been underrepresented for a long time more than we have and have bigger numbers if you wanted to do calculus um but you know that's that's what is being worked through and hopefully you know at the end of the day uh, all of us will, will will become the country that we, we will be you know and the diversity of which we are and you it also represents that too right because yeah LA is different from the rest of the country. Growing up in the South is a very different experience than growing up a, in a very diverse LA. You know, uh, in the early days, just to not to call you out, uh, but you you did question me, and, and I don't think you're questioning me personally. You're questioning how many Vietnamese people could you actually have on the show? And I remember with confidence, I said, it, there's an infinite amount. And now that I'm getting into it, I stand by that 100%. There's an infinite amount of Benny Trans, Lovan Pham, he's like a ref for the NFL now. There's Lee Nguyen, there's Eugene Trin, he's an astronaut, former astronaut for, for NASA. These are people I don't even have reach, I haven't even been able to reach out to. And there's just, that's a sort of sports and being an astronaut, but there's so many other interesting fields that within the world, you know, not just the United States, but that Vietnamese people have gotten into and they've blown that whole idea of ratio out of the water. There's like, no, in some countries like uh, Germany, you know, that it's not even, we're, we're not even a blip on that country, but we are in high offices and we've, we've accomplished a, a great deal of, of work in, in all of these cultures. Yeah, it, it's, it's incredible. And I was completely wrong. Um, and I think it depends on how it's represented, right? When you hear about the first Indian, first Indian, you know, British to become prime minister, or, you know, there's, there's other ethnicities or groups that have are represented. 
and, and use a different megaphone to, to expose that. I think that this is where the megaphone is for us today. And the complexity is on top of this is what's going on in Vietnam. You know, there it's a whole country. It is a sovereign country that has its own people, its own systems and own to, you know, um, worlds that have the people who are, you know, run the country, own, you know, run companies there, you know, and, and the successes that are coming out of that and how it may impact the world separately as a country versus just Vietnamese Americans alone. And I think that's, you know, the interaction of it obviously is layered in history and politics that don't necessarily need to be on think, but that exists. But there's that side of the world, too, and it's a different world. And it's incredible. And then you talk about Australian Vietnamese and German Vietnamese and Swedish Vietnamese, and they're all around. And I think that that is diaspora. Um, and, and and what does that mean? And I think other um, other groups or ethnicities have the same thing. And I think Vietnamese is it's, it's coming to fruition in terms of through the channel, different channels such as yours to learn like there are other people that are awesome around here and around the world. You know, when, when we first met, we spoke a lot about food and we spoke a lot about uh, religion and politics and international relations. We've had many nights of, uh, of dis those kind of discussions, but it wasn't until recently. So I always thought of you as a big cultural guy because of food, politics, religion. I always thought of you as this, you know, uh, this, this fountain of, of knowledge of, of those fields. Not until recently, we sat down for dinner. I, I made an introduction uh, for, for, a, for a good friend of mine with you. And I sat and I listened for two hours to hear you talk about business. I was fucking blown away. I was like, wait, how is this possible that there, there exists this sort of like this massive knowledge of like this cultural side, but you got into the specifics of how you would bring in this uh, partnership. Uh, it's a noodle company uh, into a Latino, uh, heavy Latino based uh, and, and your ideas just of, you have to understand it's like, it's almost like listening to somebody with an MBA talk from a marketing perspective. How did you get that amount of, of knowledge in business? It's through, <clears throat> I was fortunate to just learn it through experiences, you know, and working in business and working in non-business. I think that, 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 um, and look, there's a lot that I don't know either. Right. Um, but it's an evolution. It's something you learn from experiences and, and you learn from other people. You learn from from um, uh, you know you you learn from you know idols and and reading books and reading as much as you can um, and that's where it comes from. I think um, I can't pinpoint anything specifically. Working in management consulting really established a baseline for understanding the mm. complexity of analyzing a business. The whole marketing thing. I, I don't I don't pretend or portend or express that I'm a marketing expert at all. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like what your observations are. And everything is contributive to everything that you're trying to solve, including business, right? I understand the Latino market is uh, social science at some level and, and demographics and understanding, talking to Latinos, understanding how it works in LA, understanding the market and market here, market there. Um, and that doesn't necessarily come from just straight business. It comes from, you know, understanding a population. And it's just like when you... Um, it's social science when the market, what marketing is, right? You're trying to essentially effectively try to convince somebody to buy something, but it's also changing social behavior, right? So that's what mm. that particular is. And you can see marketing professionals in the books they write and the books they read. So for example, David's, David Brooks's um, Social Animal, it's a great book. 
it talks about the human condition and how people think and what it takes to succeed and what are the barriers to, to su succeed. And it's, you know, it bakes in a lot of the academic studies around social behavior, right? And so those are the things that I read and pay attention to. Um, and in a business like soccer and sports, um, you, you are selling a product on the field and a product that's a media product and it's an emotional product. So I'm not trying to sell you widget X, yeah. you know, it, the widget X is actually more is something on the field and something different. And that's why you need to think about, and even you're selling noodles, right? I mean, it's not, it's not, and it's changing. The, the, everything's changing now with the influence of social media and you know, George Clooney of Casa Amigos, people buy it because of celebrities, People do buy it, you know, because it's special, but brand and designer, you know, uh, very important elements, partnerships. So there's a lot of layers to this that are really kind of based on, on how people, how it occurs to people and how people engage in something. And that's not different from buying noodles to <clears throat> convincing someone to take an HIV test, but they're afraid to take one because they might be exposed. They, someone else might find out. And so if you think about the commonalities that exist across it, it, there is some there and that's kind of how I learned that and look again you know I talk about business and talk about my thesis but I always try to learn more and make sure that that thesis is firm and it's something that that evolves and not necessarily is you know you have to you have to be open to you know testing a thesis and a b testing and to get to a good conclusion and and even your answer might be right the first year might be wrong the next year you know, it, it, the, your important your answer is so important because you know I can imagine as a young kid, uh, you know, a lot of young boys and girls want to grow up to become millionaires, right? It's just a, a general sort of fantasy that a lot of young people have. You want to become a fan. You want to become a a a big person in the world. You want to you know lead a company. You want to be a president. You want to do all these things, and but you're just having these thoughts, you know. And even as a Vietnamese person sort of growing up when I was a kid, I was like, oh my God, I want to be rich. I just want to have it all. And I just want to get uh, to the place where I'm leading a big company. What what it takes now, it, now I'm seeing it a lot of uh, the way this is playing out. There's no road, there's no specific road to any of the success. But what there is, how I feel is there's this sort of like buildup of just random knowledge, but on a deep level understanding things on a deep level like what you said the hiv model probably it's you know your your clinton work uh the clinton foundation work that you did informs other parts of this sports journey for you the arabic the living in egypt all of it eventually rounds out and allows you to one day become a president of a big organization like lafc or or you know yada 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 these things are a gradual glacial sort of happening it, it's not like when you're a young kid you're like well let me just work really hard go to school and just focus on my one field because it requires much more than that to have this sort of perspective to run a, a, a company like lafc in the future or another you can probably laterally move into another industry uh, with the amount of just the, the caked on layers of, of 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 knowledge in culture and emotional sort of social understanding and and business and numbers, you know, it, it really I, I I say this because I really encourage the, the the young people of our generation as well as people who are mid level, you know, um, middle age, uh, you know, people in the Vietnamese community to think that we can 
get to these places, but we have to take risk like a Benny Tran, right? Like you just really have to take the risk to, to, to do work that's wider to gain more perspective in, in the lives that we want to live. Yeah. That's an interesting comment because, you know, look, there's different pathways to success. Yeah. My, my pathway was to make sure that, um, I was lucky enough to be exposed to the private sector before I, pers- I it was a, honestly, I did consulting just because I was getting paid and I needed money to live and get to grad school. Not that I, I did not know it was going to inform me so much wow. of the foundation of how to approach business and then and learn more. Right. Cause look, I get at the same time after my experience, after, you know, after the Clinton foundation, I was like, I need to go back to the private sector. I was considering going to business school and fulfilling the skill set I needed to go into business or have both later on. So my goal was, you know, become a generalist so that it can set up for success wherever I go. Other people, if they want to become a doctor, you know what exactly that path is. There's things like finance where you can go, you know, to a school, learn finance, get a job in a financial institution, and then pursue that path. Every single step of the way, though, you need to map out what that path of success is, right? For example, if you want to get to a good school, you can't just get straight A's nowadays. You have to be interesting. And that's a, that's a fact of what they see in an application. So, so look, there's a lot more smarter people than I am. And how did it make me look different? My brother was spot on early on. So the Arabic, it looks different. And how do you express that? How do you do that? And everything else does have to be firing at, at the highest levels. And I could have ended up at any program, but I knew that I needed to go to one of the top five programs in you know, in graduate school or public policy, to have a good chance at want to work with one of the top institutions globally, and so those are the things that you have to set the path. And people talk to people, learn more, read, so you know what that pathway is, and then pursue it. It's probably the most important thing. Um, and then you say, okay, what is my set of skills and, and background so that I can apply for it or set me up for success in the future? Look, trying to trying to protect my downsides, the risk of. Um, any downside, right, in my pursuit of of my career is, is the other the other bottom side of it, right? So that's how to think about it and pursue it, um, and and that's kind of how I approached it. And hopefully, I still go. I still don't know what I want to do when I grow yeah, up. That's the, so, be- that's the beauty of it. You you know, uh, I'm going to admit this, and I hope you don't get too uh, too too mad or charged at me. Uh, I went on to the LAFC website to find your position so I can write out the description in to prepare for the interview. And I was looking, I was scrolling down and scrolling down subconsciously thinking that if you, this is me, this not has nothing to do with you thinking in my head, Oh, we're at the bottom somewhere, right? You know, like our position as a Vietnamese person is somewhere at the bottom. And then when I didn't find you, like the 80% that I scrolled for, because I started like at 80%, I was like, fuck the top. I'm just going to start from 80%, scroll down. And I was so disheartened to not see you at the bottom 80%. I'm like, oh my God, what if Benny doesn't work at LFC? And so I had to scroll back and check from the top. And you're like the third guy in the administration side. I was like, whoa. I didn't realize that that is like, it, it was just... It's yeah, it reflects on how I look at myself and the, you know, I, I reflected on that moment thinking, you know, is this the kind of programming that, you know, throughout the years where I wouldn't expect like an executive to be that high up that list that I'm scrolling at the bottom 80% to find Benny Tran's name. Now, what exactly at that level do you do day to day? Um, 
first of all, I just, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say about that, but just look <laughs> at the top and down. And look, it depends on how it's set up. But I'm very fortunate to report to an awesome boss, the president of the club, um, Larry Friedman, and uh, love the man, and he's been great. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that I do cover. Um, it's, uh, to, you know, uh, cover external affairs. So I do a lot of work with the public policy work, relationships with um, government and so forth as it relates to our business um, strategy for the club in terms of business strategy, um, work on things that operations. I was heavy in operations before. Now I'm focused more on the food and bev a little bit, um, but also international work such as um, World Cup 2026, international competitions, um, things like that. So, um, and there's other things that we're working on in the for the future uh, that will be very exciting for the club and new opportunities. Um, and that's kind of where that covers all the bases and a lot of fields. Uh, and it was kind of born out of, you know, evolution throughout the eight years I've been here. But, building, you know, the stadium project was a very big one. Uh, and even being part of the team of 10 people for the first year, year and a half, two years to think about how the hell do we build this thing? Right. As a club, as a yeah. brand, the stadium uh, has been tremendous. And, and when you are at a startup like that and trying to do something special like this, uh, it was been an incredible journey. And so, again, I do cover a lot of bases, but uh, that, that really covers kind of the breadth of what I do. Um, and so, yeah, it's been it's been a phenomenal experience. You, you travel overseas quite a bit to like, uh, you know, Dubai and Qatar and all over the Middle East, even now in your role. But what does that have to do with LAFC? I've always wanted to ask you, why uh, are you being uh, why are you going to the World Cup this year? What does it have to do with your job? Oh, so World Cup, I think it's a pleasure and also going uh, for for work. Um, luckily, working with the host committee of 2026, L.A. is one of the major cities to host the World Cup. So I will have been, uh, be observing the World Cup in Qatar to set us up for 2026, really is the main goal. And beforehand, the, the government invited me to come to check it out, you know, in, in terms because we're L.A. football club. Uh, people know us globally. Uh, we are here in MLS, and MLS is the one, the, one of the fastest-growing leagues and a really important league when it comes to global soccer as a sport and a business. And look, America is a huge soccer market, and I think all the clubs are trying to figure out how to get into the market as well. So there's a lot of interest. So I think um, we're relevant globally. Our club is relevant globally, and that was kind of sparked the early travels to Qatar last year. But now I'm in the capacity of, of the LA26 um, that's where I'm going. Um, otherwise, you know, we do interact with Mexico quite a bit um, because of the nature of being in this region. Uh, and MLS is by nature a Canadian, a Canada and U.S. lead. Now, this is going to be a child's question. Um, hopefully it's not too naive. What does it take for Vietnam to get to the World Cup and win it? Like what is involved in that process? If, if anyone could answer that, I think they would. But I'll give you a counter example. What would it take for the U.S. to win the World Cup? <laughs> and so and so, and we missed the World Cup last year. And in the, in the 80s and 90s, we're like, the U.S. is rising. We're going to make it. And the whole, you know, era of soccer moms, we're going to make it. Um, and today we haven't made it far. We're back in the World Cup. And there's hope that we can go far, but there's not hope. I mean, we know the extent of which we can go. 
that's kind of what we are. Now, you're talking about years and years and decades of development, right, in terms of players and the system and, you know, every single child here, massive youth and youth sports industry here. You're talking about Vietnam where there's no space to play anything because it's so tight and, and people love soccer there. And look at the successes of Vietnam today. They finally qualified for the World Cup qualifiers. And that was a massive, massive. event for Vietnam as a country, for Vietnamese people, and hopefully for all Vietnamese people abroad, um, which is a whole interesting thing in terms of uh, identity, identity politics, and, and, and uh, affiliation, right? But at the end of the day, the people, of the teams in Vietnam um, uh, qualified to go to the World Cup, and they lost out in the group stages. But look at the women's team. They qualify the World Cup. They're playing the U.S. actually for the first game in 2024. Uh, I believe it's 2024. But yeah, Vietnam women's team has made the World Cup incredible. And where we have gotten to, and again, compared to this country where we have all the resources in the world, Vietnam has made it. I think it's, it's a tremendous step forward. And the, to win the World Cup, there's a lot of things that you have to figure out. Um, and then the many, many countries that have always won, Brazil and France, you know, that has always been there. It's about, you know, us trying to get there. But we're on the pathway. It's really incredible to see. And the growth of sport in Vietnam as well, right, in terms of basketball, yeah. how we play the sea games, um, Vietnamese-American players playing for mm-hmm. Vietnam national teams, right? Young people. I mean, it's incredible. And then the sense of pride that comes. And this is where LAFC represents the people of L.A., the Amer- the the U.S. men's national team will represent America at the World Cup, and it's how you know Vietnamese will represent the World Cup for the women's team, uh, and it's that sense of pride behind that na- and nationalism behind it, and, and what that flag represents, and it's it's that. Talking about the flag, you know, it's a very always a very touchy subject, and I don't know when it's going to get better, and I don't know sort of how to navigate it other than going right through to the question right because this is such a big thing we are a tiny fraction of the vietnamese population around the world we i don't know how many we're two million around or two to three million diaspora and you know you have 98 million in vietnam represented under the red flag with the star now we on everywhere else we're like these floating satellites right of the vietnamese culture when, when does this whole sort of conversation about like how we and our children are going to identify with different flags? Like we, we we cannot perish and die in the United States under this satellite condition, I feel. Is there a time that we are ever going to reconcile with saying, you know what, perhaps we should be open or do we always exist with two different flags? What's your take? What's your feel on that as a sports person? As a sports person? Oh, I, I think there's, there's a lot of feelings as not a sports person either. Dad, can we answer it? In, can you answer it in with a sports hat and then with a Vietnamese-American diaspora son hat? Sure. So, so, what's gonna, so here's my question. What's going to happen when... Um, when Vietnam, the women's world, the Vietnamese women's national team is going to play in the World Cup. Are people going to not watch it? Are people will watch it? 
will people see that it represents them or not represent them? And I have a feeling that it will represent them. Actually, now, now that you now you mentioned it, this is a seminal moment for Vietnamese. The women's team have committed to the highest level of competition in the world. And yes, it, the flag is on their chest. It's on above their heart. And they represent a nation. And it's a nation of 100 million people. So who's against that? That very small population here. So how are they going to represent themselves? That's a question for them. And, and, and I think it's a question that is generational. Right? Wait a minute. But that's a question for them. That shit happened 50 years ago. Yeah, there's a lot of lives lost. I get it. I get the emotions behind it. But in, on some level, we are living in the present moment. How are we expected to identify with an experience that's happening right now under a basically, you know, it's a it's a symbol of something that happened 50 years ago. And it it was something that is part of our history, a very much part of it. But we cannot, I cannot enjoy this experience of sharing the Women's World Cup's participation if they're going to run around with this different symbol of what I was raised with, right? I'm just speaking on sort of like this general rhetoric of there's two different things that are being, you know, um, represented. And it's important because all these sports bars in Orange County, if they're watching this Women's World Cup game, I mean, how are we supposed to navigate around this? I think it's a level of acceptance, right? Look, we're not here to take away any of the, 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 the bad experience, the terrible experience that people kind of went through. I think what we live in the past, we live in the present, we live in the future. When we live in the future, I think that's going to be where uh, I think some of these folks need to answer that question. And the future here also is, what about the generation that has grown up after the war? I remember I remember it was 10 yep. years ago or 12 years ago where two-thirds of the population in Vietnam was born after the war. Yep. They had zero inkling of what happened. So what today must be 80%, 90%, and also the young population here. You know, I think there's some level of conditioning. What I've learned is there's some level of conditioning about Vietnam. But at the same time, people are going back to Vietnam now. So it's like you can't just say, oh, I'm going to get to Vietnam. Like, oh, it's okay. I'm just going to Vietnam. It's going to be great because the clubs are great. The food's great. I'm going to party and enjoy it, right? So this very kind of dichotomous and, and, and contrarian in terms of, in the sense that um, uh, that's what's happening. But I think everyone needs to get to a level of acceptance, and we recognize that Vietnam right now is a burgeoning country, one of the fastest growing countries in the world. It was the fastest growing Asian country, more than China before, um, before, uh, before COVID. And it's a bright shining star when it comes to, you know, developing countries, right? Look at it, the reduction of poverty that's happened in the country, the, the, the amount of growth that's growing now, the amount of manufacturing that's moved from yeah. agrarian to they're building, you know, galaxy phones, right? I think that, you know, that acceptance and acceptance of young people and look, they're, uh, they're non, I'd say people who are grew up in abroad who are participating in the national team as well. What does that represent to them? They are Vietnamese and represent themselves under the flag. So I can't tell you what people will do, but I think it's also generational, right? When young people like us, I was born after the war. What did they say? How are they experiencing it? And maybe it's along the political lines too, right? There is a movement to blue and the young people, but um hopefully it's a, it's something that we can get past 
let's go to the sports bars in Orange County and say, hey, did you play? Did you show the Vietnam game when they're qualifying uh, for the World Cup? Did you watch it when they played China? Did Were you cheering for Vietnam when they played against China? And I would guarantee you they say, of course, right? Damn, I should yeah, bring a camera down there and interview some of the uh, <laughs> patrons and stuff like that. Let's switch over to dancing because that's a burning question for me. You uh, you dance a lot in the Latino clubs. You shake that booty uh, quite a bit. And, uh, <laughs> kid, how how is it that somebody who is um, you know, really so into the Vietnamese culture, but yet has such a one foot in really in the clubs and the dancing and the the Latino culture? Did, when did that start to take shape for you? It's interesting. Um, it really took shape when I was really young. Mm. Michael Jackson was my man. And when I was four, I was jumping around the, the living room, like dancing with Michael Jackson. So it's always been a part of me. Um, and it's been an evolution, you know. Um, it was actually really an expression of myself, you know, breaking out. I was a very young, shy kid, if you can believe it. A late blossomer, young, shy, introverted, was very timid. Uh, and so when I was very young, I was already into music and dancing. And then when I got to high school, when I actually left, it was my first time leaving home. And I got to experience living in the dorms, interacting with new people, international, local, and learn how to dance. And it taught oh. me how to have rhythm. And then there you go to Egypt and everybody kind of does the whole belly dancing, dancing thing, you know, not interacting. And then when I got back to college, I kind of, you know, fell in love with swinging um and really try to swing and i've been taking oh, shit. So you are real I, I just thought it was like bachata and cumbia and all this stuff. <laughs> and swinging is like that's some real yeah and one could say one could argue that i learned hip-hop dancing through osmosis who knows right like in we live in atlanta but yeah i mean you get rhythm and i just enjoy dancing and, and it's look it's, it was great you know in vietnam it's like People don't dance, but they dance, you know. And now people go to the club and dance. Wait, wait, what do you mean by that? That, that break that down. That's some funny shit. <laughs> they, they, they like to move, but they don't do technical dancing. Is that what you're saying? There's always a subpopulation that does technical dancing, ballet. There's also my my great friend uh, uh, um, Darren Joe is a basically Asian man who is a professional at uh, dancing bachata and salsa. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 not like um, Latinos where everyone dances. And my yeah. friend, my friend said, "Oh yeah, but I, I I'm Colombian. I just dance like a Colombian, like as one Colombian does, right? That means that the baseline is I know how to dance everything basically more yeah. than basically the rest of the world. The Vietnamese same baseline is not this dancing is not a part of our culture, you know. But in today's world, people do like to go to clubs. They they do dance, and depending on varying levels like you know people dance at the clubs and or maybe not right and that's just part of the evolution of also even clubs here in america right people that kind of don't dance they kind of hop around the table and i think that's a i think that you know my thesis my theory is 90s hip-hop was an era of which some of us resonate even the young people resonate but the beats are very complex in terms of movement and now you fast forward today's world it's very simple beats you don't have to move that much it's not complex and I don't know. I think generally people dance kind of less. But like that's that's L.A. versus you go to Atlanta, you go to Miami, everybody dancing, right? So there's different cultures, between, even in the U.S. But in Asia, it's different, right? In terms of, you know, the baseline of where we are as Vietnamese. 
you cha 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 cha, but that's the extent of like yeah, that's the max dancing, right? Yeah. But now, yeah, I mean, when I dance at a club in Vietnam, it's fun, and people think it's fun, and um, and 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 that's where um, I enjoy it. Um, and and I learned salsa dancing and bachata; they're great things. I just love how that moves and how you interact with your partner. Um, and, and I think culturally, it's wonderful. I wish that we had that culture. Uh, among Vietnamese or Southeast Asians too, it's not it's not the same. It's not, but even in LA, there's well, I don't even I can ha- name a few like the Mayan Congo Room. Like there's just it's not that much either in in LA versus Miami or Colombia, right? It's just doesn't doesn't really appeal to a lot of people. It's very strange, right? And and um, you you can probably five, six, seven places in LA that do it and. It's interesting because there's a salsa dance that is uniquely Los Angeles. That's a that is called that, right? Wow. So, but I mean, I have no idea why there's not in more um, places. It, whether it be demand or is it a supply issue, I don't know. We go to Miami, every single corner, somebody's salsa dancing. It's a different thing, and and whether or not I mean, there's a complex, there's a complexity behind. I think with political identity and how people approach it, you know. Uh, Miami, they speak Spanish, and you don't speak Spanish, I don't really care. <laughs> That's who they are. Yeah. Um, and also, might be regional, right? Like the, it's a, you know, bachata, salsa, Caribbean based, South American based. Uh, this is my heavily Mexican population. Um, but what's changing is I think that reggaeton is changing, you know, a lot of that, right? Reggaeton has been more mainstream among. You'll we see you'll hear reggaeton in London, you hear reggaeton, but you've been sitting at the club. Yeah, you're starting to see, you're starting to see. Vietnamese artists get into reggaeton style rap or music that is based with reggaeton beats. Uh, I just talked to a, a rapper about that. You know, they're starting to infuse uh, this sort of Vietnamese words and cultures and ideas into reggaeton, which is very interesting. Yeah, but it's it's a it's a dominant uh, cultural movement, right? And that's what now I think that's that's changing for Latinos too. Like, oh, this is Latino. Look what has. You know, Korean film K-pop has done for Korea in terms of culture movements and acceptance and recognition. Um, so uh, it's you know those are global movements. I think Korea is having a moment in many different regards. Mexico in itself, right? Mexican food, yeah. You know, film things like that. Mexico specifically. Look at the growth of taco places around the world. In Singapore, when I was there ten years ago, there were like two or three. Now it's a lot more than that. You'll see taco places all over the world now. It's become a thing, right? So yeah, and that's the beauty of 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 being Vietnamese now. It's like we're you know at ground zero, you know, in twenty twenty uh, to me twenty twenty two, like we're ground zero. Now we have like things like the sympathizer, where you know the kids really, their kids are like in their twenties that were casted for these main roles. Seven or eight of them, I don't even, I've never even heard of them. But in two years from now, these guys are going to be. They're going to be the next wave of representing. They're good-looking men. They're good-looking women that are going to be representing the the Vietnamese all around the world with this HBO series with the the sympathizer, and that is so fucking exciting to me. So exciting, right? Based on that book, there's a lot of things that I think that will will will, will come open up and open up. It's great. Yeah. It's good for all of us. Now, my last question is. You know, went by fast, right? <laughs> Given a chance in the future to retire. Uh, would you do it in Vietnam or U.S. or where would it be? I don't know. I think it'll depend on you know, you know, 
my family, if I have a family relative to my my family, my parents, my my brother, sister, or you know, contextually where it can be. Look, you know, Europe is very nice, has a different lifestyle to enjoy yourself and be relaxed and, and a really nice place to live. It could be Vietnam, but Vietnam's a little bit busier, but it could be in the outskirts of Vietnam. I really don't know, but those those are great places to look at. Or it could be like San Diego, California, where you have a, um, a, a great environment, weather, it's weather's great, no mosquitoes, or some mosquitoes, but not a lot. Um, so not sure, but those are the things that I would hope to aspire to be. And look, at the end of the day, if I had multiple homes in different places, that would be ideal, not right? Bad, yeah, that's not a bad way to live. Not a bad way to live. You, you know, uh, be, because of our trauma and because of the way that sort of we ran away and and and, and all of that, I always have this thought in my mind, watching my mom and dad and their friends, that you should be able to be ready to live in any country at any given time. And I think you exemplify that. I mean, just your energy. I can imagine you sort of taking this sort of ethos into Europe or Brazil, wherever you live, and you have a wonderful life with in bringing the your Vietnamese identity to wherever you go. And I think that's a wonderful thing that I've learned a lot uh, by watching you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's and that's really interesting you say that. And when you ask about me being Vietnamese, I know how to make pho and I know how to make bún mọc and I know how to make bán xèo. That's always will be with me. And hell, if I ever, as you warn me not to open restaurants per se, because it's so hard and I've learned that, I love it. I love it. And I will never stop talking about Vietnamese food. I talk about other food too, but like the complexities of Vietnam, Vietnamese food, what that means culture and how delicious it is. I just can't let that go. And it will be with me forever. Benny, thank you so much for finally coming on to the podcast. <laughs> and I really, really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Benny. Cheers. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast.